Mental health and wellness are crucial aspects of well-being. Their understanding and acceptance are vital for the progress of society. In a cultural context, mental health is often shrouded in stigma and misunderstanding, leading to a lack of proper support and care for those affected. Heal Your Mind with Tracy Cotson is a platform for candid conversations that enlighten and enrich our understanding of mental health and wellness. Join us as we demystify, destigmatize, prioritize, and shine a light on mental health and healing. Heal Your Mind podcast with Tracy Cotson is hosted by Mental Wellness Initiative and supported by the Ford Foundation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our podcast on unpacking the stigma of male gender-based violence and addressing the impact on their mental health. I'm Tracy Cotson, the CEO of the Mental Wellness Initiative, and with me in studio, we have Mr. Daniel Moffakeng, who is a career military serviceman until his retirement and decided very wisely, sir, to spend his retirement years focusing on gender-based violence and addressing the various social ills affecting women and girls. We have Martin Palders, who is the founder of Matrix Men and a strong advocate for men's mental health. Joining us remotely, we have Nozuko Majola from SANAC, the South African National AIDS Council. She's the technical lead for social and structural drivers related to HIV. And we have Elliot Mabaso, also from SANAC, who is the technical support of the Gender-Based Violence National Strategic Plan for South Africa. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining me. Thank you and good morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. All right, so our conversation today is about men and mental health, and it's a very intersectional discussion. There are lots of things that influence this space, but I want to kick off with you, Martin. Um, Matrix Men um, really looks at advancing this conversation around men and mental health. So from your work can you help us understand a little bit more about what the stigmas are and maybe define stigma for us first and then tell us what are you seeing in terms of men having open spaces to talk about mental health issues? Hi, Tracy. Yeah, thanks. Um, the stigmas behind men and mental health is that we're kind of taught from a very young age that you just don't talk about things. Just suck it up, move on get on with it, don't cry. So cowboys don't cry or tigers don't cry. You know, and that sort of narrative that is constantly pushed onto little boys. You know, we're not mm -hmm. allowed to feel emotions. And sadly, that leaves us with kind of five coping mechanisms as as adult males. We have what I call the, uh, the five coping mechanisms would be anger, addiction, sex, silence, and sport. Mm -hmm. So quite often men just resort to one of those five issues. They kind of just withdraw into themselves, spend the whole weekend playing golf, spend the whole weekend watching soccer on television, or they just get silent. They just withdraw into themselves. Hmm. Or they're constantly out trolling for different women because that's going to prove their masculinity. Or they use the anger, which is where the gender-based violence comes in. Or they're going to use the addiction. And sadly, when men use those five coping mechanisms, then we get that that wonderful hashtag that has gone around the world, mm. men are trash. Mm. And I'm going, no, men are broken. They're not trash. They're just broken. And they've never been given a space to be able to talk about what it is that they deal with. Um, we can look at the military environment that Daniel comes out, go to war, come back from war, get thrown out 
and say, well, thank you for your service. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. Cope with it. Mm -hmm. There's no follow-up. There's no support. You know, I mean, I know my brothers uh, were in, in on the border in the 70s, horrific scenes that took place there. I was in the military in the 80s. I used to fly to, uh, fly to the border and fly back with plane loads of bodies. And we're never given the skills. We're not allowed to talk about it. We're not allowed to unpack it. Just deal with it, you know. And boys have been dealing with it for so long that they they just don't know how to do it anymore. Mm. And we need to create those spaces where they can come in and just talk about it because that's when healing begins is when we start to talk about mm. it. We need to break that narrative that, you know, cowboys don't cry. No, in fact, cowboys do cry. In fact, the strongest boys cry and deal with their things. And unpack it and just create a safe space where men can come in and talk about issues that they're facing and that they're dealing with. Mm. Martin, thank you. That It's so insightful. I mean, I, I'm raising two sons, right? And I've been very deliberate about my parenting, teaching emotional intelligence and the names of our emotions and creating safe space. Um, I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny. Somebody had said to me years ago that men have three emotions, happy, sad, and hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, <laughs> hungry is an emotion now. But in fact, you're so right. We have stripped men of the language for emotions, of the right to have emotions, and of the spaces mm -hmm. to talk about that. And when you bottle all of that up, it then becomes those five uh, dysfunctional, yeah. in, in fact, coping mm -hmm. mechanisms. I always say that um, I often in my groups, I'll ask men for emotions. Mm -hmm. And it's weird that they always start with anger. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be a reason for that. But men on average will come up with about between seven and eight emotions. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I ask women for words for emotions, I'll, I'll be here until next week. Yeah, we can mm. keep going. And, and that in itself is a, a teller, a mm. strong teller that we don't raise our sons with EQ, with emotional quotient. Mm. And we need to, we need to change that narrative. And of course, it was in war where we first discovered post-traumatic stress disorder, right? There were the first inklings of it after the Second World War, and then the Vietnam War gave us the full diagnosis of that. Daniel, maybe to you now, just in your, in your capacity as a, and thank you for your service to the country, in your capacity as a career serviceman, what were your experiences around men and mental health? No, thank you, uh, Tracy. Thank you for the panel. I think on the question of the mental health uh, regarding uh, men, I must say, I'll talk from the observation as when you are managing men and women for decades, uh, you tend to to understand them, their approaches, etc. But it has been very difficult for men to come out in terms of the problems, uh, uh, the applied, I think that originates from uh, the socialization we, we had or got. As, as Martin is saying, <laughs> we are raised uh, from the environment that uh, cowboys don't cry, men don't cry, or you'll be told in, in the community that you are a man, don't behave like a woman, whilst you are trying to express yourself to say, but I am not uh, feeling well on, on this matter. So we encourage the, the the soldiers or service people to to see the psychologists. You know, in the military, you have everything. It's a, it's a world of its own. You've got social workers, you've got clinical psychologists, etc., and so on and so forth. 
But uh, men, it will not be easy for a man to tell you that they say, I, I went for this, I, I want uh, assistance in this direction. But for women, you can sit. Uh, I should tell you, I've been traumatized, this and that and that, and you you get into that. For me, it was some sort of evolving in as far as men is concerned, and that we had the facility to to handle that in terms of military health service that is having all the specialists to take care of mm. that. Uh, what uh, uh, The issue raised by um, Martin that um, after the service you are left alone, etc. Uh, to a certain extent it is true, but when you are still serving, there are those uh, facilities and opportunities to can, you know, to to try to to some sort of fight those traumatic situations that that you have seen, but in when I go into the the communities as I, I indicated earlier on, mm-hmm. I, I realize that men are even reluctant to participate in the campaign to combat the GBV. The first reaction will be. But you people, you don't take into account that we are also abused. There is that element. Mm-hmm. That's why I take this this topic as very important to open up, to unleash that potential to attract men into coming out. For instance, in my uh, the foundation, we, we partnered with the entities like Lifeline, which provides... Um, psychological, psychiatric, clinical counseling, etc. We saw it very important. We had to sit down with them to say, you know, we're engaged in this in the township, but we realize that men are not forthcoming and men are affected and they are some sort of reluctant because when you confess as a man, because I'm a man, you are taken as a weakling and you'll be ridiculed all, all over, etc. So I take that this opportunity, uh, this this presentation as extremely important as a first measure to open up, because in the African communities it is not very easy mm-hmm. to, to say that. I I know uh, in areas like uh, Soweto and others there are initiatives like Kulu Mandot, meaning that you must talk how you are abused by mm-hmm. a partner, how you are abused by your girlfriend. Uh, false reporting of 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 GBV etc and so on. There is that bitterness, and even if I try to mobilize some of them to say, let's get into the project, they say, but uh, be careful. We are having this this, this challenge. Mm-hmm. So I must say, uh, what we are we are talking about, it's real and it needs attention. Mm. Thank you, Daniel. And just you're talking about the Palm Chimofa King Charity Development Foundation. For anyone who wants to look up the work okay. that you do. Right, so so I want to go across to Nozuko. Nozuko, and just a reminder to the listeners, looks after social and structural drivers around HIV. Nozuko, what are you seeing in that in that space between HIV and mental health, particularly as it affects men? What are you seeing that you can share with us? Thank you, Tracy. Um, with regard to men, first and foremost. We, when we talk about HIV, there is a, a perception that men actually they avoid healthcare services. Um, 
their health-seeking behaviors are very low. And because of that, they tend to run away from even going to the health facilities for testing because they are always scared of finding out about their HIV status. And that uh, creates a problem when you talk about GBV and uh, mental health and HIV, because uh, most women, they find themselves being victimized by their male partners, because if a woman goes to a clinic and, and test positive, which they are forced to go to the clinic, especially if they are pregnant, and they come back and they announce to the family that, or to the husband that actually I'm HIV positive. And because men cannot deal with those traumatic issues as compared to women, they find it difficult. And in our space, we find that it's important that you bring both partners together and announce the results that came out of that process. But instead of acknowledging that I might have been the one who brought the epidemic mm. into the household, they end up uh, criticizing the woman and then GBV happens. Mm. So I've seen it in many scenarios, especially as men are regarded as providers within the households when they lose um, um, employment, there is always that expectation. And you find that this thing of, of the expected, the societal expectation that men are providers, it also impacts in their mental health and, and they are looking at their health-seeking behaviors as well. It becomes difficult for them to go and ask for help just to deal with their mental issues or coping mechanisms. And then they will cope differently. As um, uh, Martin has said, you know, those five areas that he mentioned, in fact, I liked it because now it, it enlightened me as well to say, okay, so men have got only five coping mechanisms that they they utilize in order to cope with issues. And in mo many at times, we are always looking at the fact that, they, if, of course, they will be angry and then they will also inflict violence uh, to the people that are weaker within the family. And um, there is also another expectation that men should always be strong in whatever space. But... Um, and we tend to forget, especially people who are working with women, many a times we forget that men are also human beings and they've got mental health issues that they also have to deal with. And that tendency, especially from a feminist side of saying men are the perpetrators of violence without peeling the onion deeper just to mm -hmm. understand what is causing this um, violent man. Because a man who was not violent, who was known not to be violent, if an event happens in his life because of being a human being, then 
he turned to these five things that Martin has mentioned, Mm -hmm. which one of them, a noticeable one, will be violence, Mm -hmm. of course. Thank you for introducing us to The Onion. (laughs) Uh, I think in layers when I'm thinking about how, you know, social structures work and these diving forces works. And I love the idea of an onion because we can always keep, you know, peeling back a layer and, and drilling down deeper and not accepting things at face value. I find it very interesting, your comment about men have a lower predisposition to seeking help. And and that's across the board, Nozuka. So it's not just mental health, mm. right? You're talking um, mm. HIV counseling, and I'm assuming you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that might then extend to other medical services that they might need. Oh, yeah. So so does that sound broader is what I'm saying. It's much broader than mental wellness. So the stigma that's keeping men from seeking help for mental wellness issues is actually driving other behaviors which are physically really detrimental for them. That's correct, Tracy. In fact, we've seen it. I used to work for Department of Social Development, and I happened to work with the ex-mine workers in the Eastern Cape who felt that since they've lost employment, even their wives, they undermine them because they no longer bring uh, money into the family. And it goes further to a point where a woman will, will even bring a girlfriend and in front of the men, you know, undermine the men to a point. And men cannot tolerate that because the expectation from the community is such that no woman should undermine you, you know. And then when, uh, because I was working for social development at that time, I even suggested that maybe you should go to and see the social workers. And even that, it's not easy for a man. Going to the police station is also not easy because there will be a laughing stock of the community mm-hmm. because it's not the expectation is that you cannot be undermined by a woman mm. and forgetting that women can also be cruel towards their men. Mm. Mm. And, we're, we're, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because we need to unpack that a little bit more. Um, mm. I want to go to you, Elliot. You look after, within the SANIC environment, you look after the National Strategic Plan on Gender-Based Violence from a technical support point of view. And I know that the NSP tends to say it's victim-focused and frames the victim as being a woman who is suffering from gender-based violence. And we know GBV is a lot of things. I'll talk about domestic violence, rape and sexual assaults, there's financial abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, and so forth. So using GBV as just a cluster term for that. So Elliot, noting that the NSP talks to a woman as a victim and then centers the female victim, how do you engage around men and their mental health and potentially men who are themselves victims of those things that I've just listed, domestic violence, sexual assaults, psychological and emotional abuses, and so on? Firstly, coming into the work of GBV, even for myself, the first thing one needed to understand is what is gender and the spectrum of gender needs to be understood because we need to understand the power dynamics that come with, you know, one identifying or presenting a particular gender identity. 
And, you know, the first, you know, piece of work we needed to do uh, from our side in terms of the NFE, yes, we see that the victims are a movement. But when you think about a theory of change, we really need to start thinking what kind of a South Africa do you want to build and who needs to be engaged to ensure that we are able to, you know, build that actual vision of success. So for me, the first basis was, you know, as a South African man myself who identifies as, you know, LGBT, I needed to understand what does GBV mean to me and how does that reflect in my in, in my instance and then also try to see how each and every person you know comes into the picture and when you, you spoke earlier about you know stigma and where the stigma comes from especially from men and how we are you know socially constructed to behave a certain way so for me it was even much more challenging for someone who might not fully you know identify with particular social construct in terms of what a man is and how you identify as a man so i think for me, the first instance was being able to identify yourself and, uh, you know, have that sense of um, a sense of belonging to say, I belong or I'm this kind of a man. So luckily, you know, being able to be engaged at 17 with, you know, an organization that works with key population made me understand the difference between my masculine traits and my feminine traits and how to dip into both of those to be able to function. Because, I mean, the main idea of those two, you know, um, um, aspects of humanity is being able to function and how one is able to acknowledge, you know, their masculine and, 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 and effeminate side and be able to access those when needed. And a lot of times when you think about, you know, um, um, a man, it's how those aspects are taken away in terms of, you know, dipping into your effeminate aspect, which then would force you to take care of yourself. And like you said, beyond just mental health, when you go to the clinic, you don't find a lot of men there. So now the conversation starts going back to say, yes, the women are victims, but, you know, we can help as many victims as possible. But it's very important to also think about how we can assist the perpetrators and the core essence of where the challenges come from that uh, enforces them to behave in a particular manner. So we need to really look at the community as a whole and understand the challenges that forces the people to act in a particular manner. Um, I think Mamnoza would remember when we were doing a theory of change, which is um, a a dialogue with young men and we are trying to understand for them, you know, what can be done to assist young men. And we had a group of young boys from Social Nguve. And, you know, one of the main things that they were always speaking about is how they lacked um, um, a role model, a male role model within mm-hmm. their, their, their spaces that they can identify. So we go back to that, you know, uh, need for one to be able to, 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 to identify and link themselves and be inspired by someone. So there's a bit of a lack when it comes to that aspect um, um, for men. A lot of men don't have that direct line of, you know, uh, people who are uh, role models, for, for instance, and can, you know, inspire and, and, and promote positive change and behavior in one's life. I think even for myself, within the family construct, it's very um, difficult to start conversations about your own uh, emotions as a man and have a space or know that you are allowed to be able to express yourself in that essence. So we really need to think about, you know, the household of a South African uh, um, uh, a family and what influences come from, from you know, religious background, cultural background, and really the uh, economy itself, poverty, and all the other things that we are seeing within within uh, a community, and how that can influence a, uh, a young man. 
So my thoughts mm. are just really just on, on that aspect, uh, just starting off. In fact, just to add on what Elliot was saying, you know, one of the things what, that we are noticing as we are engaging with multiple communities or even service providers, service providers are not recipient of the fact, are not welcoming and understanding that, you know, even men can also suffer from mental health issues. Even men are different. Even, you know, Creating that enabling environment is even difficult for service provider, which further push men away from seeking health Mm -hmm. um, and services from even our service providers. At some point when we're doing gender-based violence, we had to even talk about gender diversity and inclusion to the social workers so that they understand that they will as they are working in the communities, they will come across different types of people and they must be able to accommodate all different types of people despite their gender um, preferences. So we ended up uh, looking even at our programs to say when we must not go with the assumption that everybody understand that uh, we also have key populations that we are working with. We need to start where people are. We need to uh, even look at the issues of uh, pronouns and, um, and, you know, create a conversation between our stakeholders to make them comfortable, to create a safe space when we are working in an environment for a better understanding of the people that we are engaging with. Hmm. Thanks. Martin, did you want to add to that? Oh, there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Succinctly, Martin. (laughs) I want to start off, Nozuka and Elliot. I don't know if you you know the study. It's called 13,915 Reasons for Equity in Health. Not okay. It was specifically <laughs> done in 2008 to find out why AIDS was such a big issue in South Africa specifically, right? They went out, they interviewed 126,000 boys in 1,192 schools around the country, nine official languages, right? And the results were this. 44% of all boys had suffered sexual abuse by the 80, age of 18. Okay. Perpetration rates were this, 27% had suffered sexual abuse by both genders, male and female, 32% by men, and 41% by women. Now, the reason why I bring this up is that I don't think, I've never met a boy as a five-year-old boy, and I always say, you know, what do you want to be as an adult? They always go like, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a policeman, a fireman, I want to be Spider-Man, Superman. I've never met one that goes, well, you know what? When I grow up, I want to beat the crap out of my wife or my partner. I've never heard that before. They don't go, you know, when I grow up, I want to be an idiot. When I grow up, I want to be a rapist. I've, I've never heard that. You know, boys, <clears throat> ideologically, they want to be supermen or they want to be heroes, right? So what happens between the age of five and the age of 18, 19, 20? Well, one of the st- things that the study came out with that we – as activists, especially in the male male area, we, we kind of try and deny this, but it's, it's a fact and we need to look at this. We can't take one part of the science and ignore the next, right? Mm-hmm. So another thing that came out within the study is that boys who have been sexually abused are four 
times more likely to perpetrate a rape. Okay. And this is where we started seeing why we had such a prevalent HIV AIDS uh, pandemic in this country. And it continues. We're just like, oh, well, now we can manage it and you can live forever. You know, so we haven't really gone. I don't think we've kept up the prevention side of it. Right. But we need to look at this. We need to start talking about these things. And we need to talk, if these boys have been raped and they resort to their five coping mechanisms, can we see why we have this escalation of rape, sexual abuse, violence in this country? So we're not addressing the cause. We're just trying to put band-aids on it. We're just trying to fix things. You know, and there's so much in this space that we need to talk about. And we need to start looking at, right, firstly, all the rape crisis centers in this country are for women, right? For girls and women. And when people turn around and say, a friend of mine uh, actually did some research, some research into this. She said in South Africa, there's thousands of rape crisis centers, right? And she said she went and interviewed 125. I must remember the research. Sorry. She interviewed 125 of them of the 125, 10 said that they support males and females, right? Of the 10, Four showed one male in their advertising or on their web pages, right? So what's that message we're sending? You know, we have for girls. Men are kind of a side issue. So we're not fixing the problem. We're not fixing the issues. And we need to look at this, especially in your space. If, we, if we've got so many boys that have been sexually abused, and this was confirmed in the Optimus study in 2016, 33.9% of girls have suffered sexual abuse by age 16, 36.8% of boys. Why are we not talking about these things? And this is where I get so angry. Is like we've genderized this field to such an extent that it's become a war. It's become a how, oh, you know, pronouns and, and boys and girls and, and boys, you bad and you mustn't go out and rape people and girls, hey, you know, you can carry on doing what you're doing and it's cool, you know, because we're all fine with that. And it's not, you know, we need to change the narrative and we need to change the narrative for both boys and girls. I mean, at the moment, there's this thing going around. Teach your girls that if a boy is abusive to them and, and, and treats them badly, that it's not love. I'm going like, uh, you know, why do we do this? Why don't we say teach your children that if somebody is abusive towards them, it's not love? You know, we've genderized everything to such an extreme that we've essentially excluded boys. And you just got to cope with it, you know. But hey, when you do something bad, we're going to call you trash, right? You know? Mm. Yeah. I wanted to get in there. I think the information that is brought about by Martin, for, for me, is new and very interesting because I've been having the view that uh, not much research has been done in terms of, for instance, sexual abuse of, of boys, uh, but especially in the black community. I think it is still maybe that outlook that boys do hide and conceal that, 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 that aspect. But uh, I think Elliot uh, raised interesting thing which I, I some sort of really concentrate on in my uh, community work to say. He mentioned about the expectation. Uh, Nozuko also, uh, she mentioned that society expects a man to provide society expect this and that you are ridiculed if you are unemployed etc and so on and so forth i think there lies the problem we need to look at the the perception of of the society 
and how it perpetuates the stereotype that result into a boy being violent. When you talk about uh, men as a provider, why don't you balance the equation on a woman as a, as a provider? Because it's a stereotype. Is it's a, it's a stereotype. Mm. You know, in my environment, uh, we even had to go for affirmative action uh, of the soldiers. And we realized the impact, the good impact that it has on promoting women to the same level of, of, of men and how it lessens the question of, of abuse of such empowered uh, 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 woman, women. Now we go back to the family. Uh, Elliot, you said the family, the society, the community expect this boy to provide, to assist, to, to get the work. But you don't, you, you, you don't realize the, the economic situation that actually um, affects that man to be in that pathetic situation. But if you again take that situation into the women section, it will be the same thing. So I, I think the equal opportunity here, if men and women are given the same opportunity, women will not be vilifying, will not be insulting uh, a man as it is now because the perception is that you are the savior of the family, etc. But if you bring your 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 salary here and then you compare and reconcile, etc. and so on, that will minimize the attitude of of the family looking up to the the father uh, being the, the, the savior, etc. and so on. I think we need to look at the society, the perception and the socialization of, of the families and the attitude itself. Because this one of men are perpetrating this because they are abused. It's not very so clear to, 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 to many. But the community, I think, the society, the tradition uh, contributes in forming an element of superiority mm. complex of, of men, of the one who's supposed to, to provide, instead of being scientific to say, you know, it is high time that women are empowered so that we balance the, 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 the equation. That is, that is my view. Maybe to a certain extent I'm trying to put across my foundation view to say gender equality will minimize that. And I think both Nozigo and 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 Elliot are coming up with with this, and I think uh, Tracy, if this discussion, the, I hope this discussion will not end up at the psychological effect of men being abused by women in one way or the other. Uh, but it must come with some solution to say, mm. let's break the so-called customs. If these customs actually perpetuate and result to a boy abusing a woman, a woman according to custom as an inferior to, to her, we must start there. Because that is what's happening in the African uh, mm. community mm. to say, you know, a woman is taken as if it's a subordinate entity. We must start there. So I, yeah. think, I think if this uh, broadcast can 
really try to look in, uh, into that. Really, uh, as perpetrators, I think men are, I don't, I don't think they feel good for rape, for abuse, etc. I think they are, unless they're drug addicts, etc. and so on, they, 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 they know they are somehow, somehow abnormal. Mm. And that's why we condemn them. Whatever the argument they put across is criminal, etc. and so on. But they need to be attended to. Uh, uh, when I started, it was a question of uh, the medical, as Nozuko is showing that they are reluctant to be assisted. Social workers, clinical, psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. They are reluctant to that because that community beg, if they can hear that you went for counseling, it's going to be a big thing. That hey, mm. Listen to that. Mm. The next boy went to counseling. Yeah, who could see him? And that's a weakling. So I, I, I think the issues that are raised, I, I, I consider Nozuko and, uh, and Elliot as specialists because in social development, you need really, you are working mm. with this thing every day. And in AIDS, et cetera, health, you are uh, that thing. But they are raising things, the causes, more than the, 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 the effects. Because a rapist, you see the end result of a particular process to say, how can my son, I've never raped. But here is my son doing something unthinkable, et cetera. We look back and say, oh, but the creation is there. So I am saying the, the society, we, we need to challenge the stereotype, the traditional, mm. the customary, the way of looking things from the man point of view. A woman must not be a woman because the men say so, or they are defined by by a man. A woman must be a woman because it's a woman. That's 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 that's, that's my approach. Mm. Tradition, customs, and socialization. I think they play a very uh, big role mm. in actually making boys to be those kind of animals like mm. rape because if you rape i think you are you are not human so that that is my 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 approach and uh, uh i will learn a lot I'll, I'll look into the statistics as indicated by 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 martin because for me the majority of gbv are women and and, and mostly women Really, because evidence is there, research is there, etc., and so on. It's no research. Sorry. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I research want to that is done is about women who are beaten and men that are perpetrators. There is no research mm -hmm. in this country mm -hmm. into male victims of gender-based violence. There is none. I guarantee you that. Like and we always refer, go like, there's research. I, no, there's I not. refer the research on, and uh, even crime statistics are showing that majority of the abuse are women. And... Of course, that uh, even the the, the 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 research is showing that women are the worst hardest hit in this regard. Mm -hmm. I am saying no research. If you are saying maybe I misunderstood you, misunderstood you. If you are saying uh, there is no much research in men being abused, that, then I agree with you because I I haven't come into contact. There are areas that I'm told about like this. Kuluman daughter, I still have to get it because I feel there is a problem there that needs to be resolved. Mm. I think we do understand in terms of there's no research in terms of men suffering. 
gender-based violence. Yeah. Hmm. I think another thing is uh, the fact that, you know, we'll see the statistics pointing towards women mostly uh, because women, they are able to, they, their health-seeking behaviors mm. or their service-seeking behaviors are much better as compared to women, yeah. to men. So men don't report these things because of 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 um, stigmatization, uh, stigma and discrimination. Um, so the numbers then they won't balance out because men are scared. What will people say if I go to a social worker? Uh, the so police. they are caring, mm. or to the police. So they are carrying that burden. Mm. So and then you find that our statistics is actually skewed. And you look at the boy, a boy child. You look at the statistics of boys who are abusing girls. And they, they increase. I cannot quote the statistics now. But I think the stats from SAPS last year was talking about a majority of boys at the age of 10 already uh, sexually assaulting young girls. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, why is this happening? So I want to agree with, um, with Daniel as well to say, you know, we need to look at how our society perceives things and start from there because I think there's a lot that is wrong with our society. Mm -hmm. And the, the difficult thing is that um, in our in our society, for instance, I'm working with a majority of women and sometimes I must think feminism all the time because I'm with women who are feminist. Some, you know, at times I, I don't believe what I'm saying because it's not only uh, women that are being abused. Men are also mm. abused. And because I, I don't have the stats to show, and when we talk about IEPV, intimate partner violence, uh, which which is is a is a phenomenon phenomenon in our HIV and AIDS space, um, fifty six percent of women that are experiencing um, intimate partner violence on annual basis. Um, but what we don't say um, is. So women, are they, didn't they bring HIV into the family, you know? Um, are they not abusive in some other forms, the other forms of, of violence that they might, might inflict to their partners, resulting in them, you know, inflicting pain to the, or violence to their women. So th we don't have a space to engage further and really look deeper and say, what are the root causes of everything that we are experiencing? And then we've got religious sector as well. It's not helping us. So we need to really look at our belief systems, whether it's traditional and religious sector, when we talk mm -hmm. about issues of gender-based violence, mm -hmm. mental health, mm -hmm. HIV, and other social ills, of course. I think if I can come in also uh, just to add to, I think one point that Martin uh, mentioned in terms of when you go to the GBV um, service uh, provision spots, how you never see, you know, men also, uh, um, um, you know, 
services being provided for men and the lack of services there. And I think when you think about how Mamnos um, um, has already spoken about men have a less health-seeking behavior, and what we can agree is that you know mental health is a is a, is a human challenge you know um you beyond just gender-based violence when you think about mental health as a whole anyone who is a human experiences daily stresses that would want you know to be supported and now that we think about the framework of south africa where uh men on the one side um are taught or um are so you know constructed in a manner where they are unable to say how they feel and how they're experiencing life throughout of all of those, you know, pressing challenges that you see on a daily basis, then it does build the premises that we don't know as much as we need to when it comes to um, uh, uh, men and their experience. Um, and when we look at the two um, power dynamics, I know last year we saw an increase in, in, in you know, teenage pregnancy. And most of the efforts on the HIV field have been, you know, focused towards the the, 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 the the young girl and being able to provide her with enough information and enough um, 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 resources to be able to protect themselves in terms of condoms or uh, um, 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 medication or pills to prevent uh, uh, pregnancy and and all of those uh, services that are being directed to the girl child. But we haven't seen a lot of you know, similar services being directed to to the male child or men, or when you ask yourself where or who uh, these young girls are being impregnated by. I mean, you look at the statistics, you'll see some of them, it is a, you know, statutory rape. They are underage, but they are pregnant. And it really then needs us to think about how we form our 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 our, our interventions to also speak to, to, to men and the services that they need. And without being able to drive that agenda towards men, I think we're going to be missing out on, on a key intervention aspect when it comes to trying to, to lower gender-based violence in that essence. Yeah. Elliot, just before you started talking, I literally took out my phone and I was Googling some stats that I remember from two years ago. And I'm so glad you raised it. Um, and I'm just reviewing them now. It was... There were 900 children between the ages of 10 and 14 that were impregnated, right? You remember those statistics and this article, it's a Mail and Guardian article, actually speaks about the lack of outrage. We should be outraged at those statistics. But I want to use that to point to something that Martin said. All of those pregnant people are girl children, which is how we catch it, right? We catch the fact that some person... And, and it's frequently not another child who's impregnated them, right? There's a whole grown adult male on the other end of that equation. But boys don't get pregnant. So if someone's doing the same thing to a little boy, he slips right under the radar. And if we look at Martin's stats that, and it's nearly equitable. I mean, if we, that first study you quoted, um, the 13,900 reasons why, said 44% of boys are are reporting that they've been victims. So if we take that back into a, an adult male mental health equation, we're saying that the statistics between boys and girls being sexually assaulted is is damn close to the same, I would say. It's pretty mm-hmm. equitable mm-hmm. in in childhood, right? So so um we're kind of saying 
childhood into early teens. But there's a breaking off point there. Once you hit puberty and then early adulthood, the girls are going in a direction where health-seeking behavior is encouraged and services exist. The, mm-hmm. the boy children are going in a direction where due to patriarchy and that beautiful description you gave us, Daniel, of the way the system suppresses health-seeking behavior in, in men and boys, they end up going in a different direction. Mm. But if we look at it from a GBV point of view, in the early years, they're being victimized quite equally. Mm. And some studies show that boys even a little more frequently than girls. But we're catching the girls because they get pregnant. We're catching the girls because this helps more more health-seeking behaviors. And the services exist for them. And I'm going to say that with a disclaimer, we know the services are not available equally to the same extent and with the same quality. But we know that they exist much more than they would Mm. for, for guys. And so I think there's such a golden thread here between... Daniel's emphasis on the way the the patriarchal system creates it's, it's it's creating a psychological and emotional disability in a sense for so patriarchy serves no one that's my firm belief it serves mm. absolutely nobody everyone is getting hurt but just in different ways so men are robbed of the language of their emotions robbed of the right to even have emotions to talk about what hurts them there's no services for them and then they end up with dysfunctional coping mechanisms. Whereas for women, there are more services, more opportunities to talk. But by virtue of being women and the way patriarchy frames us, we're more likely to also become a victim of all sorts of systemic inequalities. You were talking, Daniel, about um, you know elevating women through the ranks um, in the military spaces when, um, what was that lovely thing? What's it called again? Um, the affirmative, affirmative action, that's the one. Yes, yes. When that, when to that lo- starts, to level the playing, to ground. level the playing yeah. field. And I want to pick up on something you said earlier, Elliot, which really struck me. And I'm paraphrasing what you said because I'm trying to capture the essence of it. It sounds to me like patriarchal concepts of masculinity, these traditional concepts of masculinity, actually reject the feminine which is why persons who are not male and female or man and woman and find themselves in the space between and are trying to identify and fight for their voice in the space, they come under fire because they're actually incorporating the feminine as well. Did, does that make sense to you? Did I capture that well? Because I'm trying to understand how patriarchy is the common thread here. Yeah, so I think when you think about, you know, gender diverse people who, who don't necessarily fall under the spectrum of, you know, cisgender, um, mm. even in that aspect, if you think about um, the hate crimes we've seen in a lot of lesbian women for, you know, uh, presenting as masculine, and you listen to their stories and how, now, when you think about masculinity, it's learned behavior. So even for someone who is trying to find themselves, they are marinated within a spectrum of these two binaries that we we are all born into. Mm. And not only do you then um, take the trait of masculinity, but you also take the toxic aspect of it that if you are, uh, uh, you know, now a lesbian identifying woman, then you start being, you know, wanting to activate that masculine aspect of you by having a, a bit of force, a bit of violence, because that's what you're seeing. And this is 
how you know mascul masculinity mm -hmm. is being portrayed within your society and for for someone who then identifies or uh, feels more effeminate then you try you start getting to those effeminate traits to say maybe i shouldn't speak my mind as i should you know you take back on some of the ideas or some of the the, 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 the the traits that are seen to be more masculine about a person, you still feel more, you know, vulnerable. You find more uh, trans um, uh, a men or trans women who effeminate presenting would likely not be able to defend themselves because they feel, because I'm effeminate, I can't be fighting. But that's something that, you know, it's, it's, it's a human character. It's a, it's a part of you being able to protect yourself. And we speak about, you know, I'll make an example when you go into um, a club, for instance, and someone says, uh, you know, for females, they shouldn't pay, but the men should pay. And already within mm -hmm. those, you know, kind of small, and it's very subtle in terms of how we do it and how we construct these, and how we police these gender norms ourselves in society. And we speak about stigma and stereotypes, but we forget these are individual opinions that form these stereotypes so mm. we are responsible as a society of how you know we, we have developed each other to become this you know uh, community that we are in and because it takes so much time it's going to take the very same time to start you know unlearning some of the things that we, we learned in the beginning so i think in, in that mm. sense that for someone who is still you know trying to understand themselves within the spectrum of gender um it's very it's a very critical aspect because you also now are acknowledging everything about that particular gender and it's very easy to also take in some of the traits that might not be as positive to towards your development as a person mm. yeah yeah, you know, Martin uh, reminded us of the rancor or anger of women referring to us as trash. I think uh, every thinking, reasonable man will will understand that feeling. Tracy, I'm having a problem that uh, the society created this monster that is the rapist, and this rapist being a man, but you seem not to take it. Yes, uh, with Ifa, I'll have to give me. Uh, you know, I can give a long history why I'm always some sort of differing with uh, statistics that are brought about by uh, by Martin. Mm -hmm. That uh, these people who are abusing, or let me be very blunt to say, the the, the rapists. One can say. Those people are sick, and that's why this discussion is very important. That they be they be helped mm -hmm. uh, as perpetrators. And I did indicate that uh, you know the society, the community, stereotypes are responsible for creating that monster. Mm -hmm. But I have a problem that uh, we we seem to be acting and we be engaging Hollywood and and in malapropism in serious situations. For instance, somebody will say GBV is a pandemic and we leave it there and go and drink our beer. But I think I think we need to go a step further, more especially from the social workers and the social development and the legal judiciary to say why is the 
the the rape not considered as an illness, uh, psychological or whatever. Illness, because already it has been taken as pandemic, which is illness or, or a, a disease affecting mainly men. My concern is is the question of the very society itself. You know, uh, the Minister of Basic Education uh, instituted a commission uh, to investigate inter-ministerial task team to investigate this thing of the GBV school and in the school environment. And Professor Ford Mink uh, did indicate that the teachers are so heavily involved in abusing hmm. the girls and even the female teachers. Professor Ford Mink uh, actually indicated that for a, a young lady teacher to get a post, the probability is that uh, she must go via the bathroom to get that post. God. And you know, you know what made me sad was that uh, the the unions uh, involved uh, in teachers, whatever, they attack the minister like there's no tomorrow. Now, this evidence is there, but the teachers are refusing to say it. Uh, this pandemic exists within that sector. So where do we hide if teachers, teachers are people we are looking up to as knowledge practitioners and knowledge providers? So I, I think really uh, this, this topic needs to blow, if need be, to destroy those stereotypes to a, to a very, uh, to a great uh, extent. Because mm -hmm. uh, when you look at the teachers, being involved in this, why, what about the illiterates in the township, in the rural areas, mm. etc., and so on? Now, but I will ask the, the the two specialists there: Why are we not taking rape as illness, uh, and not only talk about the mental wellness of of men, but to say those people are sick, it must be treated likewise? And give prominence to the clinical psychologists, etc., and so on, to say they must declare war on on, on this matter. That, that that's really my mm -hmm. uh, my concern. Ah, oh, geez, thank thank you, Daniel. There was there was so much. Um, like I don't even know where to start. There was so much in that. I think what, and and we're almost out of time, so I'm gonna start wrapping us up. But I think what what was really important was that we condemning the action but helping the person. And I think rounding up rapists and just throwing them in prison without treating, you know, mm. the root causes and giving mm. them the actual help for recovery is just a huge disservice to humanity. I want to just come to Martin and Martin, you can also just give your closing comment. But um, I saw your face when Daniel said um, uh -huh. men are rapists. And I just want to remind us all that according to that study you referenced earlier, up to 41% of the boys who are reporting sexual assault had been sexually assaulted by women. I think where we're seeing the difference is that in childhood, children are vulnerable to both genders of perpetrators, men and women. 
But in adulthood, it's much more physically dif difficult for a woman to hold down a man and rape him. So I think when we talk about rapists, we mustn't only talk about what we're seeing as an adult event, you know, and, and, and in that instance, there's definitely more male rapists than, than females mm -hmm. or inversely more female victims than male victims. Mm -hmm. But in childhood, and I want us to walk away with real clarity on this, in childhood, the rapists are pretty much well evenly divided. In fact, if I'm, and I'm just noting back to your stats, Martin, in the Optima study, it was 36% of boys were reporting that they'd been sexually assaulted. In the 13,000 reasons, it was 44%. But the perpetrator the change of, change of uh, consent, the age of consent. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. So it was 16, 18. Yeah, to your, to your yeah. age groups. Um, but I think what is important is to remember that 32% of those perpetrations were committed by men, whereas it was 41% of women. So we're going to fool ourselves if we say that all rapists are men. I think the women are just, the women rapists, the women sexual assault people out there are targeting children versus targeting adult men. I think they're smart enough to know that mm. it would be very difficult to do that to, you know, a, a sober, cognizant adult male. Mm. And I want us to really be clear that we're not forgetting the children in this equation. And that's important from a mental health point of view because it is those same children who grow up to become perpetrators of all sorts of things, right? Mm. Not just GBV, but a ton of different social ills. The same children, and we're talking about the boy child now, for whom there are no services, as Martin pointed out, for whom stigma, because of the way patriarchy frames masculinity, Stigma is a monumental barrier to those health-seeking behaviors you were talking about, Nozuko. Just the ridicule that people would experience if someone saw them entering the psychologist's office, for example. And so I think there are so many threads in all of what we've been talking about that lead to, you know, the mental health of men as being a at cri I think it's at crisis point. And I don't think we can make a dent in GBV without talking about the mental health of men. Mm. I don't think we can run away from the fact that South Africa currently has the highest suicide rate for men in the world. And that number is very strongly leaning towards black men between the ages of 18 and 35. They, our young black men are in massive crisis from mm -hmm. a mental health point of view. And yes, unemployment and yes, education opportunities. And the there's so action. many, there's exactly, um, there's so many things that plug into that. But I'm just trying to like put us in a nutshell to walk away with. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stop there and just give everyone a minute to just leave us with your parting comment. And if you could have the listeners today walk away with one important thing that you want them to know. What would that one thing be? I'm going to start with you, Martin. Gee, you're not giving everybody else a chance here. I'm going to get to them. <laughs> so I think my my main thing is, and what I've noticed is that everything evil that we see in society today is essentially wedged in childhood trauma. And we need to start looking at that. South Africa being one of the highest rates of fatherlessness, 62% of our children grow up without fathers. And there was at the um, 
the Labour Museum at the bottom end of Joburg, uh, a saying that I saw on the wall there, and the, the guy wrote, he said, I hope my sons are not kept from them, their wives as their father was from their mother. And when you look at that and the insidious nature of forced labor that happened 100 years ago where men were taken away from their families and put into mines thousands of kilometers away from their families, boys had to then suddenly grow up without fathers and that sort of stuff. So bear these things in mind. I mean, mm. there's, you know, we, we, we can't drill down into one single thing that causes mm. all of this, but essentially it's childhood trauma. I mean, growing up with only one parent is, is deemed to be one of those childhood traumas that we deal with. Poverty is one of those. When we look at the poverty in this country, you know, it's, it's an indication. Violence, another one. Um, addiction, you know, that sort of stuff we can carry on. But it's that. And then we also need to start understanding that violence is not the sole domain, the domain of, of, of men. Um, you know, in studies done in Italy recently, they found that there was more GBV in lesbian couples, so 42%, as opposed to gay couples, 31%, mm. as opposed to heterosexual couples, 25%. Mm. So violence is more prevalent in, in, in the lesbian community, which speaks to what Elliot said, is these girls trying to be more masculine because of you know, whatever reason. And, and I see it. Again, drill back to childhood violence, uh, childhood trauma. Mm. So until we as a society start addressing the root evils, childhood trauma – Nothing's going to change until we create spaces where little boys, little girls can start talking about the pains that they experience in life. Nothing's going to change until we create spaces where young boys feel free to talk about their hurts. Nothing's going to change, you know, and, and we need to start addressing that issue. We need to start looking at things realistically, you know, stop Stop this genderized thing. You know, I keep saying it. I keep saying it, and it's a fact. It's a human problem, not a gender issue. And we need to start approaching life from that perspective. Mm, thank you, Martin. Nozuko, I'm going to come to you. Closing comments, last words of wisdom. Thank you, Tracy, and thanks to the fellow panelists. Um, you know, as we were discussing this uh, this morning, what came to mind, especially when Elliot cited the fact that these are learned behaviors and we have to unlearn. Mm -hmm. And uh, the easiest way for me and practical would be, you know, let's start whilst our children are still young because I think it's, it's really difficult looking at, I'll go back to my metaphor of an onion, when you look at what constitutes these behaviors and um, the things that we see as a problem, actually there's a lot that has happened to that human being. And also, you know, we've got different disciplines. And, um, you know, we spoke about children committing crime and I'm, I'm even thinking about Department of Social Development. You know, they've got those centers that they are for children who are in conflict with the law. Already we are stigmatizing that center instead of correcting it. And mm -hmm. then when you go to correctional services, we say it's a correctional services. What is the difference between 
where children are being kept and where adults are being kept. Mm. Shouldn't we take a more positive approach uh, in looking at these issues and use our social workers and our psychologists to have a deeper understanding what has gone wrong to a person before we can label that person as a rapist because there's there's an issue there's a as daniel was saying why do, don't we call it an illness and i mean i've i've just looked at different at one of the study and they are saying um rapist is not it's a behavior it's an it's a pathological behavior so you look at the way we label these things and and we perpetuate we continuously perpetuate all these uh, social ills that we are experiencing so as practitioners as activists as um professionals in different disciplines we have to really look deeply in this issue rather than uh, superficially thank you mm, thanks nozuko Elliot, I want to keep you for last. Can you hang on for a... I can see you rearing to go. <laughs> Daniel, please. Thank you. Briefly, I, I must say, I, no, I think Nozuko enlightened me that uh, uh, to rape is not an illness. I was trying to raise it to that level. Maybe we need a redefinition. Mm. But uh, given the topic, I, I do believe that... Uh, the rapists specifically needs help um, if the society can focus on that. But more than that, um, really, I think the society, the community, the customs and traditions will have to really look at it because I, I believe they produce the un, unwanted products like what we are talking about. So the root cause need to be looked at uh, seriously from 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 my point of view thanks mm. thanks Daniel Elliot yes uh, thank you so much colleague I think this was such an insightful conversation um, especially on you know some of the statistics and uh, I'm just drawing also from what Martin said in terms of most uh, you know violence that happens within children you know we are all responsible for that and you know tracy if i could really tell the community one thing uh in terms of gbv and mental health and men is that we really need to start thinking about how we contribute to the social construction of our society and it's it's a very subtle nature in how each and everyone's opinions from the household. I mean, you think about the children now and how Mam Nozuko says we need to start unlearning particular things, but it's a cycle of information that really needs to start changing. It's not just the children, but it's also their parents and how they understand, you know, how we socialize. So each and every one of us as an individual is responsible for that. I mean, you go to a restaurant, you see a man-sized meal and you're forced to eat more as women because you think that's what society wants from you not to pick the veggies or we say things like you hit like a girl but we don't see how that is disempowering to a female person and if you take 10 girls and you 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 tell them show me how you hit they don't actually hit that soft so it's those kind of little nuances that we need to start thinking about as parents as individuals as adults within society and think about how these comments build and change behavior of the future we're trying to see for South Africa. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. 
Mm, thank you, I Elliot. never realized that's yeah. why I'm overweight. <laughs> Man-sized meals. You go to a restaurant and there's a steak and then there's a lady's steak. I'm like, what the hell? Why, do I, why am I getting unfair discrimination <laughs> yeah. in my portion size? I too would like a man-sized steak, please. Um, but, oh gosh, Elliot, you're so right. It lives in the subtleties. Hey? Mm, it lives in the does. subtleties. Oh, you hit like a girl. You run like a girl. You, you eat know, like a lady's yeah. steak. <laughs> you eat a lady's steak. <laughs> yeah, for us it was always um so so I'm one of three sisters. For us it was, you know, sit with your back up straight and cross your legs and act like a lady. And I'm like, what does that mean? What is actually? a lady? Yeah. And now when people say I'm a, la- a lady, I'm genuinely offended by that because ladies are quiet. Yes. They spend all their time and money and resources on looking pretty. Mm-hmm. And they just uphold <laughs> the value of a man. That's actually research. Right. That That is yeah. the definition of what mm. people think a lady actually okay. is. Yeah. So mm. I'm like, I'm neither quiet. I'm not using all my resources to make myself look pretty. And I'm not just sitting here boying up you know, some guy somewhere. Mm. So please don't call me a lady. I will be highly offended. <laughs> um, so um, my my parting um, shot for us today is, and I'm weaving together all the threads of what we've spoken about. And I think, I think shame is a part of our equation and it hasn't come up in our conversation. But if patriarchy has got this dictatorship of what masculinity should look like and and masculinity has all these toxic, very unhelpful traits. Mm. If you are experiencing any kind of violence or um, you're a victim of domestic violence or psychological or physical, emotional abuse, because of the patriarchal dictatorship of how you're supposed to be as a man, you're going to feel a lot of shame within yourself, like you're not, you're somehow not unworthy as a man, you're not good enough as a man, you know, all of this internal narrative. And that will keep you from from seeking help. But it also then drives you, because shame is a driver of dysfunctional coping, Martin. So so into our drugs and alcohol and sex and, and even workaholism is a dysfunctional coping, mm. coping mechanism. And so I think shame really interweaves. It's almost like the living part of this equation that keeps people from speaking out and seeking help. But I also want to talk to the community of people who are perpetrating something in their own environments. So imagine if you're a perpetrator of something and you feel like crap because you're doing it and you want to get out of the cycle of this thing that you're doing, where do you go for help that you're not going to get put in jail? Like you you want to get help for your, let's say, your domestic violence. But if you go and tell someone, hey, I'm outing myself um, and I'm a perpetrator of domestic violence and I want help, the closest you'll get perhaps is the police now coming to knock on your door because you've self-identified. Mm-hmm. You know, so how do you get help? How does, because shame, I'm just putting myself in, in someone's shoes. Shame would lock me down. I would not go and say a word about how I'm being abusive, how I'm being controlling, how I'm sexually assaulting. Even if I just wanted to get therapeutic help for my behavior, I wouldn't be able to do it because number one, it doesn't really exist. And number two, if it did exist, um, you'd get you'd get the law before you got the help. And shame would just keep me in the dark and closeted about all of those things. And I think, and, and you'd alluded to it earlier, Daniel, I think a lot of men 
know they're doing wrong and harmful things. Mm-hmm. And I must say that I fundamentally believe that that all people are good, but they all have um, you know, childhood traumas, bad experiences, and so forth that pushes us down a road. But I think I think if we gave most people the chance to be better, they would take it. If we gave most people the opportunity and said, you know, do you want to be a better person? Do you want to shed this um, cloak of of pain and disappointment and addiction and mental ill health and abusive things? If you could just take it off like a backpack and leave it on the ground, I think most people would. Mm. I don't think there is a man alive who's doing these things and and – I mean, unless you've got serious psychological issues. No, they are. There are men yeah. who don't want to change. It, well, that's what yeah. that's what I'm, I'm disclaiming now. Mm. Unless there are those with some serious psychological issues. But we're not talking about them. We're talking about the bulk of humanity. Yeah. What I would like people to take away with today is if you know someone who is struggling with mental health issues, if you know someone who is a victim of gender-based violence or is perpetrating that violence if you know a man who's in struggle who's in crisis and you can just you can see it pick up the phone check on him take him out for a coffee see if he needs support reach out because in that way you can take some personal responsibility for breaking down the stigmas breaking down the barriers and when we look at the suicide rate in this country you could very well be saving a life just by making that call And I'm going to leave us there. Thank you, everyone, for your time today. It was a really good, robust conversation. And I hope to see you all again in future conversations. Go well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Tracy. Nice meeting everyone. Enjoy your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Heal Your Mind podcast with Tracy Cotson is hosted by Mental Wellness Initiative and supported by the Ford Foundation. 